This is an ABC podcast. Hi, this is David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone on RN, and welcome to part two of Philosophy in the Wake of Empire, a five-part series that's running through November and on into early December. Great to be with you. This week, Europe, refugees and migrants, the legacy of a colonial past that seems very present today. There is something unsettling about standing in a square once named after Adolf Hitler and listening to thousands of Germans chant nationalist slogans. Germany has just registered its one millionth refugee and these people want to send them home. That news report comes from December 2015, a year when more than one million migrants, mostly from Syria, crossed the Mediterranean Sea. They were fleeing the chaos of war and hoping for a better life. Four years later, European nations are still struggling to handle the unprecedented number of refugees on the move. The rise of the European far right, with its open hostility to Muslim immigrants, has worried observers thinking about the all-too-recent history of Europe and the genocidal madness of World War II. But today's refugee crisis also raises the spectre of an earlier chapter in European history. We have to take seriously the fact that the migrants now are from the post-colonial world, that is to say the formerly colonial world for the most part, uh, even in cases where they come from countries that were not fully colonized, they were certainly semi-colonized, let's say. So in some ways, what the migrants are doing is bringing a certain historical experience of having been colonized in the past into the center of European life itself. And this is a historical novelty, I would say, in the last several decades. My guest this week is Amir Mufti. He's Professor of Comparative Literature at the University of California, Los Angeles. The migrants and refugees uh, that were prevalent in Europe in the interwar decades, in the 1930s and into the 40s and 50s, let's say, uh, brought very different kinds of things, it seems to me, uh, through their experience uh, into European life. They were themselves largely speaking, Europeans, even though not treated as citizens in the countries they were born and raised in. But these are migrants that come both from far away and somewhere really not so far away, because after all, the colonial world uh, is something very proximate to European history and very close to it. When you say these migrants bring the experience of having been colonized back into the heart of Europe, what exactly do you mean by that? I mean, how does that experience make itself manifest? Well, I think in a whole number of ways. Um, For instance, let's take the example of religion and religious identity. So one of the ways in which the migrant question is talked about in Europe today is around the question of the religiosity of the migrants. And of course, we're talking uh, specifically of uh, migrants who are of Muslim Islamic background. And the question that is raised is, well, this is an alien religious tradition and people have beliefs and values uh, because of belonging to that faith that are very different from the values of European life and so on and so forth. And can they be assimilated uh, and so on? Uh, I think the problem is actually quite different than that and in some ways much more complex, which is to say that the most recognizable forms of Islamic belief and practice actually in the world today, and uh, certainly within the European debates about migration, is a form of Islam, namely political Islam, let's call it that, 
that really emerges for the first time under the conditions of colonial rule in places like uh, India and Egypt and parts of the Middle East and so on. So it's a form of Islam that's really a kind of Protestantization of the Islamic tradition in some ways uh, with a very sort of uh, literalist uh, notion of the scriptures, ideas about Islamic law that are actually derived from the practices of the colonial state and the place of law in in colonial practices and so on. That's so interesting. So you're saying that this... Political Islam, which is is seen from many quarters in Europe and really all around the world as being the antithesis of secular democracy, is in some sense, well, it's a, a product of Europe's imperial past. So, so, in a sense, native to Europe. That's absolutely right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, precisely the form of, of uh, religious belief that is seen as being most alien to uh, uh, modern European historical experience and to European civilization more broadly uh, is in fact the one most impacted by it. Uh, a whole range, a massive range of other kinds of Islamic belief and practice, by the way, very often associated with the lives of women, very broadly referred to as Sufism sometimes, although I don't think that's a very accurate or very detailed uh, description, um, really sort of become invisible in these political debates about migration. And all we see is the radical figure of the Islamic, uh, political Islamic militant, uh, very usually male. But as I said, these figures and these modes of belief and practice are, are really unimaginable and unthinkable before the impact of colonial rule in a number of Islamic uh, Muslim societies. If we look at the mode of ethical thinking commonly drawn upon when people talk about issues of immigration and refugees, it's that developed by Emmanuel Levinas, okay, the, the idea of the other as the one who makes certain ethical demands on us, who in some sense even constitutes us through that ethical relationship. It's a very slipshod summary, a very complex line of thought. But you've said that this sort of ethical thinking is not adequate to understanding what's happening in Europe. How does it fall short? Because it is very familiar and very commonly cited, isn't it? Yes. I mean, first of all, there's direct citation, as you say, of Levinas and the sort of broader ethical philosophical tradition in thinking about these questions about migrants and refugees. On the other hand, even people who are blissfully unaware of Levinas' philosophy might also use terms for thinking about the refugee question in terms that are largely a kind of popularized form of uh, Levinasian uh, ethics, shall we say. Uh, so the now famous, infamous uh, German um, uh, slogan, refugees are welcome here, this enormously warm and decent act performed by anonymous Germans in their thousands at train stations, especially in, in Munich, uh, during 1915, as the refugees were uh, making their way north uh, through the Balkans and through Central Europe into Germany, uh, that has a basic ethical understanding of what it is that's going on. Now, my concern with this approach to thinking the refugee question is twofold. Uh, one of them is that by focusing on the ethical dimension that what is left out or what becomes really invisible in some ways is the political and historical dimension, uh, how it is that groups become uh, minoritized and how it is that they become colonized subjects and how it is that they become post-colonial and uprooted and so on and so forth. So the ethical is welcome in many ways, but it has to, it seems to me, 
in these popular approaches to thinking the refugee question uh, has to be supplemented with a more political and historical understanding of who and what the refugee populations are and what the long historical trajectory is that has placed them in that position. And secondly, it seems to me that the Levinasian approach, uh, while, of course, it assumes the form of a kind of universalist account of the ethical encounter and the act of taking responsibility for the other as the sort of foundational uh, philosophical question. So it takes this sort of universalist stance in many ways, but it is deeply informed by one very specific historical experience and trajectory, and that is the prehistory and history of the Holocaust. And my worry again is that the migrant Uh, historically speaking now, is a very different kind of figure. So that all the conceptual attempts made to think about the refugee, for instance, the concept of the stateless and Hannah Arendt and so on and so forth, while we cannot do without them, we have to work through them, we have to take them elsewhere to a different place in order to understand Uh, the experience of the contemporary migrants and the contemporary refugees. Again, for all these reasons that we've talked about, that these are post-colonial populations. Uh, uh, Colonization is a formative experience of their social and historical past. So is decolonization and everything that comes after that. So that's really my main concern with Levinasian, or two main concerns with speaking of the refugee question in Europe today entirely in a kind of ethical register, humanitarian register. September 2015 saw 10,000 people marching on the streets of Dresden, Germany to protest against a perceived Islamic invasion of Europe as refugees from the war-torn Middle East poured into the country. Most of the protesters identified as members of PEGIDA, or Patriotic Europeans Against the Islamization of the West, a far-right political movement that's been gaining popularity throughout the continent. This man says, we don't need them. Most of the ones that come here don't have a job. They're planning to make money selling drugs and they just hang around. They should stay in their countries. Another man asked if he has any problem with the fact that there are Nazis at the rally says, no, no problem. It's not the first time in European history that people identifying as ethnic Germans have risen up against a minority class of perceived parasitic enemies in their midst. Amir Mufti. The key thing to understand is that, yes, uh, you know, as Hannah Arendt says, uh, the Jews of Europe and Central Europe, of course, in particular, but really eventually, of course, throughout Western Europe, uh, were the minority par excellence, she says. Uh, in this crisis of European society that emerged after the First World War. As the multinational empires were broken up, the German, the the Russian, and the um, uh, Austro-Hungarian, and turned into nation-states, and of course also the Ottoman in the far far southeast. And what she says is that the Jewish experience in these decades is the experience of the minority par excellence, but they are not the only minority. And of course she links the experience of having been turned into a minority. She sees minority always as an ascription. You become a minority within a certain social and political structure. It's not something that is stamped on you by birth, you know, by your physical nature almost, uh, as it were. And Jewish experience is that of the minority par excellence because when they become stateless, in fact, no state can be relied upon in Europe to protect their rights. 
So what Hannah Arendt is always trying to do is to both take very seriously the fact that Jews are being uniquely targeted for violence, and yet at the same time to not forget that it is, you know, it's not to be understood in just simply sort of essentialist uh, ethnic uh, or religious terms, but rather in terms of the social and political vulnerabilities that come from having been turned into minorities and eventually with having been uprooted and made stateless. So any social group really under the right or let's shall we say wrong circumstances can acquire that condition and that stigma and those forms of vulnerability and suffer a, a, a very punishing uh, and horrific fate as a result. Uh, but she's not thinking in terms of ethnic identities as some eternal realities. Uh, and I think we ought to follow her example. So I think Muslims, many in many ways, to some extent, I, I think it, it ought not to be exaggerated and could be exaggerated, of course, given the extreme nature in the end of the way that Jewish populations were dispensed of in Europe under the Third Reich. It's possible to exaggerate it, and I don't want to do that. I want to be careful about it. But I am beginning to see some ways in which both the anti-Muslim stance and those who seek to fight against that and argue against Islamophobia and things of that sort use language that in many ways is reminiscent of the language that we receive from the history of the so-called Jewish question in Europe. It brings up a, an interesting confusion over on the political right, I guess, over who constitutes the real enemy, right, <laughs> Jews or Muslims. And, and I, I understand that there are right-wing factions in Europe that have Jewish chapters now or that explicitly make room for Jewish members, which is, um, seems quite strange. That's exactly right. Uh, and that's, again, I think really is a bit, uh, thank you for that example, because it is really clarifying to, in some ways about my argument about what a minority is and how you become a minority and how you leave that status perhaps under, under different circumstances. We are now in circumstances in Europe in which the status of minority is not uniquely, but certainly uh, predominantly ascribed to formerly colonial populations, to migrants from the former colonial countries, from the former colonial world, the global south, uh, we could say, as a whole. And uh, the far right, you're absolutely right, is very confused. And they, in fact, go back and forth between showing their classically anti-Semitic colors uh, on the one hand, and at other times trying to co-opt, in fact, critics of anti-Semitism, trying to co-opt them, in fact, uh, into their own agendas by staying focused on the post-colonial and, in particular, the Muslims. The English Defense League, uh, this group of thugs, really, in England, for a while, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but for a while, I uh, had a, a Jewish brigade or division, I can't remember the term, that was used for that. And ironically enough, it was run by an Israeli uh, immigrant. But she eventually abandoned it, you know, because she, uh, and she said that, in fact, deep down, they're anti-Semites, you know, they might be, they might be trying to win me over because we both hate the Muslims, but in fact, they really are anti-Semites. And the history of the National Front, the National Rally now, it's been renamed in France, is also very much involved in this question. I mean, uh, Marine Le Pen's father, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, of course, is a classic anti-Semite and a classic anti-Arab racist, uh, reported to have been a torturer during the Algerian Revolution, so on and so forth. A pretty nasty figure. 
and you know every few years says something controversial about the holocaust being a foot, small footnote in history and things of that nature and uh, his daughter has been trying very hard to do away with that image of her party in order to kind of um, I guess, get some support out of uh, Parisians or something of that sort, right? I mean, people who would not uh, succumb to an easy anti-Semitism in their political affiliations. And she has had to kick her father out and in public and have this huge uh, family conflict precisely in order to sort of clean up this image of the old French nationalist as anti-Semite. But as leading figures in the party have said, once you can do that, then everything becomes possible. Hmm. It's a very dangerous and terrifying statement, really, because what they mean is we can be much more... If we can really cleanse our image from that of anti-Semitism, if we can really... Uh, separate our Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism entirely from uh, the anti-Semitic past of the French right, then we can perhaps really enact a maximalist uh, Islamophobia and racial politics towards uh, the populations of the suburbs. So yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think in many different countries in Europe, the right is really riding a kind of the horns of a dilemma here uh, in terms of Islamophobia uh, versus anti-Semitism. And the final complication in this, of course, is the perceived conflict between Muslims and Jews as a kind of definitional conflict, as it were. Uh, that all Muslims are somehow inherently anti-Semitic. There are people who have said on TV that the immigrant children in the suburbs uh, receive anti-Semitism in their mother's milk. You know, it's a horrific metaphor. Uh, and perhaps it's not even a metaphor the way it's used because it's meant quite literally. It's a very, very difficult question. And uh, of course, the other complication is that uh, this sense of a division between Jews and Muslims is also very much of colonial origin. I mean, if you look at the history of uh, Jewish life in Algeria, for instance, during the colonial period. The entire colonial state policy is to distinguish Arab Jews from Arab Muslims and to do so in very systematic ways through education and, and reform of religious practice and so on and so forth. You know, Ashkenazi rabbis are brought in to Europeanize their congregations mm, and yeah. so on. Um, so it's a very complex history, again, that leads back to colonial times uh, and this is my core position, really, that almost nothing having to do with post-colonial migrants uh, today uh, can be really understood unless we take this longer historical view that takes us back to the varieties of colonial experience. This is RN. I'm David Rutledge. You're in the Philosopher's Zone. And this week, my guest is Amir Mufti, Professor of Comparative Literature at UCLA. We're talking about migration and refugees and the shadow of Europe's colonial past. I just want to stay for a moment with this question of um, Muslim immigrants and refugees to Europe having this sort of exemplary minority status passed over to them from European Jews. And I take your point about not pushing that parallel too far. But what do you think are the implications there for European Jews today? And, and does this crisis perhaps, or the way this crisis is playing out, shed new light on our understanding of the Holocaust? 
Well, the light that it sheds on our on our understanding of the Holocaust, one way to put that would be we have traditionally taken the Holocaust to mark a kind of rupture in European history. There's before the Holocaust and there's after the Holocaust. Uh, and before the Holocaust, we have the conflicts of the nation-state, we have majority-minority, we have uh, scapegoating of minority groups, um, uh, failure of assimilation, and so on and so forth. And after the Holocaust, we have the new Europe, which emerges gradually, perhaps, but but that it's a kind of irreversible uh, history of um, the institutionalization of tolerance and solidarity, that big European word, uh, you know, human rights and so on. And perhaps what we ought to think of the Holocaust is that it's a kind of punctuation mark. You know, it's not, it's, it's a pause and it's a redirection, certainly, but by no means does it mean that the conflicts that defined European politics in the late 19th and early 20th centuries have been overcome. Perhaps they've been redefined and remapped in certain ways. I mean, one of the curious things, of course, is that many of the things that we associate with the nation state as a political form, which emerges gradually in the course of the 19th century across the continent and then is transmitted to the global south through, through the colonial empires, Many of those facets, uh, the idea of a kind of culturally or civilizationally uniform population, perhaps even racially uniform, the notion of a kind of shared origin, the notion of a slightly big word, uh, autochthonous development, that is to say a a process of historical development that's entirely self-driven and autonomous rather than influenced by outside forces. All these features of the ideologies of nationalism in the 19th century. You know, the sad thing is in some ways they've been mapped onto the continent as a whole now. So that even this far-right European patriotism to me is evidence of that, you know. I mean, look at a group like Pegida, which very explicitly is a European patriotism, right? It calls itself uh, patriotic Europeans against the Islamization of the West. And I think that's happening in other groups and in other countries as well, the sense of a continent-wide people, uh, which sort of tries to erase this really very bloody history of intra-European relations over, over centuries and millennia, of course. Uh, because, of course, it's, it's kind of a convenient, I- inconvenient uh fact as far as these ideas of European civilization are concerned that the right is promoting now. Well, of course, the question of whether Europe can survive this crisis is the big question. And you have said that it's not just a European question, but a universal one. In in what sense is that the case? Well, that's a tricky question, of course, and I could probably get into all kinds of trouble with all kinds of different kinds of people uh, uh, in in answering it in this way. I I never hesitate in those kinds of things. Anyway, uh, so it seems to me that the entire process of the last 500 years, I'm going to get really grandiose now, okay? If we look at the history of the last 500 years, this entire history of uh, European expansion a colonization of four continents uh, and the way in which the development of capitalism accompanies the development of white supremacist forms of governance and rule and culture throughout the world 
leading into high imperialism in the 19th century, the formal division of the entire world between handful of European powers, which are nation states at home, but empires overseas, you know. If we look at this entire history in thinking about the question of um, contemporary migration, then the migrant from the post-colonial world is a figure that has not entirely erased those things from its person, that this figure is in, in many ways someone who retains certain features of uh, those colonial relations. But in this entire process, European culture and European life, of course, have in many ways acquired a kind of universalist force to them. I mean, you know, that was, of course, the great claim of, of the civilizing mission in the colonies, that European values are universal, that the task of colonialism is to bring the civilization to the barbarians and so on. I'm being a little bit harsh, but, you know, I, I think that language will be familiar to any student of colonialism on, on any of the continents uh, of the global south. So the fate of Europe and unification, the project of unification, is, is a part of that historical process, not removed from it. Uh, it's an attempt to overcome the process in some ways, but also remains mired in it. So I think this most recent form of European life and its fate is of relevance in some ways to everywhere. Uh, uh, in the world. You know, the educational system of the entire world now is essentially what 100 years ago, certainly 150 years ago, would have been thought of as very narrowly European, the university system, even K-12 education and so on, right? I mean, there are certain kinds of modes of education like the Islamic madrasa and all that, of which you can't quite say that, but even they have been influenced very deeply by this entire evolution brought about by the introduction of modern Western education in the colonies. It has a very rich history in the Indian subcontinent, for instance. So that's to just give you one very small example. The political conflicts that arise out of social relations in, let's say, Africa or, 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 or in Asian countries or in African countries are, of course, not entirely illegible to people with a European political history, right? We have all been Europeanized. I mean, that's the entire history of colonialism. And the entire struggle of decolonization is to find some degree of social and cultural and political and historical autonomy despite that process of having been, as it were, Europeanized. That is to say, how to acquire modes and develop modes of modernization that are not simply, as it were, uh, Anglicization or, or Francisization or something of that sort. Uh, so in that sense, too, it seems to me, uh, the fate of these most contemporary forms of uh, European political thinking and political practice are of relevance, I think, throughout the world. Well, this has been such an interesting conversation. It, it's raised so many questions that we haven't really got time to answer here, but we will be picking up on a lot of these questions in um, subsequent programs in this series. But for now, uh, I'll just uh, say thank you, Amir Mufti. Thank you so much for your time. It's been uh, great to have you on The Philosopher's Zone. It's been my pleasure. And Amir Mufti is Professor of Comparative Literature at the University of California, Los Angeles. That's it from the program for this week, but uh, join me again next week for part three in our series on philosophy and post-colonialism. 
we're going to be talking about missionary feminism and how the universal sisterhood presents something of a white face to the world, particularly to women in the global south. That's The Philosopher's Zone, and of course you can find us anytime via the ABC Listen app or wherever you source your podcasts. I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for your company. Bye for now.